Now, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Wausau. My name is Barbara Drake, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a warm welcome to everyone joining us both here and online this morning. Since 1870, UUASA has served as a vital force for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, gender, and sexual orientation, race, and ethnicity, political position, and economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. The mission and ministry of UUASA is made possible by the generous support of our members and friends. We've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for your gifts. You can also make a one-time or recurring donation on our website. And now we have a few announcements. Please join us after the service next Sunday, December 4th, for our annual Hanging of the Greens. Grab a cup of coffee and a cookie and help us decorate our beautiful atrium and sanctuary for the holiday season. The more people who can lend a hand, the better. So let's gather together and deck the hall. The second announcement is Good Leads for Green Reads 2022 is here. The Environmental Action Group invites you to pick up a copy of this year's compendium of literary suggestions for holiday gift giving. It's only a small sample of all the great green reads out there. But we want to thank those of you who took time to share your recommendations. We encourage everyone to consider giving a book about climate, ecology, and natural history or the environment to a friend or family member. You may also want to consider picking up an earth-positive book for yourself to read on those cold winter nights which we are bound to have. Okay, and with that, let's gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the verse for lighting our chalice. You will find it printed in our order of worship. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Now please stand as you are able for hymn number 1031, filled with loving kindness. It's in the teal hymnal.
now please remain standing for the affirmation. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge in freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with one another. And the doxology. Now we'll have the story for all ages. Please be seated. We'll be reading The Little Yellow Leaf by Karen Berger. It was autumn in the hush of the forest. A lone yellow leaf clung to a to the branch of a great oak tree. I'm not ready yet, thought the little yellow leaf, as a riot of fiery leaves chased and swirled around the tree. Not yet, thought the little yellow leaf. As the afternoon sun beckoned and teased. Not ready thought the little yellow leaf as apples grew musky, pumpkins heavy, and flocks of geese took wing. Still not, she thought, as the other leaves gathered into great heaps, crackly dry, where children played. And the sun sank slowly, and a chill filled the air. Not ready thought the little yellow leaf, as the heavy harvest moon bloomed amber in the starry sky. Not yet, not yet, not yet, thought the, through the long night snow flurried and the little yellow leaf held fast to the great oak tree. Days passed by and still the little yellow leaf held tight, alone. She searched the bare, bare branches covered only with the shimmer of snow, alone. And then, and then high up on an icy branch, a scarlet flash, one more leaf holding tight. You're here, called the little yellow leaf. I am, said the little scarlet leaf. Like me, said the little yellow leaf. Neither spoke. Finally, will you, asked the little scarlet leaf. I will, said the little yellow leaf. And one, two, three, they let go and soared. Into the waiting wind they danced, off and away and away and away. Together. Together. 
And that is our story for all ages today. You can see we haven't done a test run on this. <laughs> and I need my slide clicker. Barb is going to be, be rejoining us later in today's service for our meditation segment. But now I would like to do the reading, if I can get these to work. Um, before there was Zen in Japan, before there was Sun in Korea, before there was Tian in Vietnam, there was Chan in China. The roots of Buddhism lie 2,500 years in the past, but Chan developed in China during the Tang Dynasty some 1,200 years ago. So it's sort of a latecomer to the Buddha scene, and it became very popular during the Sung that followed a thousand years ago. The Sung was a period of incredible flourishing of the arts. It was a kind of renaissance, and uh, painting and poetry were very common and, and reached a height they've seldom reached since. Um, Su Dong Po is a very well-known and beloved poet of the Tang. He traveled widely. Uh, in, early in his career, he traveled for work. He was a civil servant. He went hither in Yan, actually studying um, iron mines. He wrote the best treatise on iron mines that we know from this period. But he ran into political trouble and got exiled by the court. And in his exile, he traveled some more. And it was in his early 40s that he turned to Buddhism and spent a lot of time painting. Here is Sue's self-portrait. I'd like to share a poem of his with you today. And there will be five slides accompanying the poem. The last two are his paintings. Misty rain on Mount Lu, waves surging in Chiang. Before I had been there, many a regret surely I had. But once there and homeward I went, how matter-of-fact things seem. Misty rain on Mount Lu, waves surging in Chiang. Uh, now, Margaret and Donica are going to lead us in our second hymn. Please open your gray book to number 352, Find a Stillness.
Technical difficulties. Thank you, my friend. We Zen folks don't do much with technology. Our lesson for the day uh, concerns Zen concepts and um, the Zen brush. So, oh, that should have been with our song. Kyoto. Uh, before there was Buddhism of any sort in Japan, there was the ancient animistic religion of Shinto. The name means the way of the spirits. Buddhism arrived in Japan some 1,500 years ago. Uh, it was brought by monks who came down from Korea. Buddhism and Shinto have always coexisted harmoniously in this nation. A recent survey found that two-thirds of the populace identifies with Shinto in some way, and another three-quarters call themselves Buddhist. And even if you didn't like fractions in elementary school, you probably know that two-thirds and three-quarters is more than 100%. That means that there are a large number of people in Japan who practice both faiths and see no cognitive dissonance, experience no tension between them. Um, there are a variety of Buddhist schools, Zen is probably the one most of us who are Euro-Americans know. It is not the first, it's not the dominant one. It has, however, had an enormous impact on traditional Japanese culture. A quick trot, Shingon is closely related to, to Tibetan Buddhisms. It's polytheistic. At the other extreme, Jodo Shinshu is monotheistic. This is the practice that many, many Japanese Americans who remain Buddhists follow in this country. Uh, and then among this array, there is Zen. Uh, we are primarily an agnostic approach. You'll occasionally hear us talk about Buddhas and things, but it's not really the focus of what we do. What distinguishes Zen from almost any other practice that I know of, Buddhist or otherwise, is its radical experientialism. We don't, we, we read, we have sacred books and all that, but we are the people who want to do, we want to experience what it is that we're feeling. You may have heard me talk about a familiar concept called Upeksha, familiar to Zen, called Upeksha. Uh, it is typically translated into English as equanimity. The person who did this slide called it spiritual happiness. Don't ask me after the service what spiritual happiness is. I have absolutely no idea. Um, in the Zen traditions, in the Chan tradition, if you uh, take the Chinese word and the Japanese word for upeksha, it's the same ideogram, and it doesn't mean equanimity. It means letting go or relinquishing, the letting go of desires, the relinquishing of cravings. So how do you do this in the Chan schools? Well, one of the major ways we do this is through working with the energy of the body, um, it's called qi in Chinese, qi in Japanese. The ideogram is the same. Qi, qi, same printed letter. And it means air. Everything we're breathing is qi. Breath is qi. The vital energies in our body is qi. And the energy that surrounds all of us and all living things is qi. We don't have any analog in English. Air is one word, vital energy is something else. And we don't think of them as the same. In these traditions, they're one and the same. 
And the goal of the martial arts and the calligraphy and a lot of the visual arts is to work with this key and to gain a kind of mastery and awareness of one's key energy, uh, one's expression of it in that process of gaining mastery and being able to express it. It's called ki haku. Um, so there's some benefits to the person of ki haku, but there's also benefits to others because developing kihaku helps the practitioner better understand other people, better to support them on their own journeys in, in this life. If this sounds a little mystical, a little flaky, a little too much electric acid Kool-Aid tests for your tastes, I'm gonna show you something else. The flow kitty, the kitty is flowing above the ground. A flow is a concept that was developed by Mikhaili Csikszentmihalyi in the mid-70s. Uh, Csikszentmihalyi was the chair of the Department of Psychology at uh, the University of Chicago. He is one of the founders of a subset of psychology called positive psychology. Uh, and he developed a schema where you've got apathy down in the corner, and you've got flow up in the upper right hand in the place of prominence. There's dimensions to this chart. One is challenge. When challenge is low, you're apathetic. When challenge is high, you may be heading towards flow. It's also skill on the other axis. When skill is low, you're bored. There's nothing to do, and you don't really want to do it anyhow. When f skill is high and challenge is high, you can reach these states of flow. Csikszentmihalyi got interested in this, interesting to me, by uh, observing artists, painters, who get absorbed in their work. And he and his colleagues identified five characteristics of flow. Here they are. Um, action and awareness merge, and because of that, you kind of lose sense of your ego, you lose sense of yourself. In flow states, there's uh, time distortions. Time can go fast, it can go slow, it can stand still. It is never going to be ticking along like the hands on a clock while you're sitting through my lecture. And um, aspects of performance, whatever that performance is, are, are highly accomplished. Now, we have Upeksha, we have Kihaku, which helps us get into Upeksha in the Zen traditions. And on the Western side of this, we've got flow. They're not exactly identical. And because I come from Arizona and this time of year, the citrus is all ripening, I'm going to make an analogy to grapefruit and oranges. Grapefruit are not oranges, but they're all citrus. Flow is not upeksha, but they're somewhere on the continuum of uh, perceptual change in the person. So how does one develop kihaku? Well, most of you may be familiar, many of you. How many of you are familiar with sitting meditation, zazen? Okay, everybody knows zazen, okay. Um, Kinhin is another thing that Zen, Zen folks do. It's a walking meditation, probably less familiar. But because this practice of helping people get into kihaku states is not restricted to the clergy, Zen has developed a number of other ways to help lay people do that. A huge one is the martial arts. Any martial art you can think of that comes out of China, Vietnam, Korea, or Japan originates with Chan and is designed to get you into that kihaku way of life. That goes from judo to very gentle internal taiji chuan. Another way, historically important and still today, is through the uh, arts of calligraphy and brush painting. 
and I'm not, I'm not sure about this, I haven't read it, but my hunch is that both the martial arts and brush painting are things that you can easily take with you. The martial arts are in your body, they're skill sets, and it doesn't take a lot to carry an inkstone, a piece of paper, or a, a brush. I have a, a display of those out in the atrium. Uh, so unlike Japanese architecture, where you kind of have to be in one place, if you're a wandering person, if you've been kicked out of your capital for political reasons, if you're a monk seeking enlightenment, you can take this stuff with you. Um, the supplies for Japanese painting and calligraphy are called the Four Treasures, and they are very much sister arts in Japan. Um, D.T. Suzuki, who was very influential in introducing Zen to this country in the 50s, it was here in a small way before, but Suzuki is really the guy who popularized it and influenced the Beat Generation, folks like Jack Kerouac. They were influenced by Suzuki. Suzuki wrote of these twin arts, they create an essentially contemplative experience that awakens the primal consciousness within us. I don't know about you, but having my primal consciousness awakened is kind of appealing. Uh, a contemporary writer, Shozo Sato, uh, created a book called The Quiet Art of Japanese Calligraphy. And he takes Suzuki's sense and claim one step further. And this is a radical claim. Uh, and I am not going to tell you that I absolutely accept it, but I think it's worth sharing, because if nothing else, it's fun. Uh, what Shozo says, when a calligrapher who is using the concentrated energy of kihaku writes an ideogram, a character, using the ink ground on the inkstone, it is said that the lines of ink themselves create boki. Bo-ki is ink energy. Bo is black ink. Ki is, again, our energy. What is bo-ki? Well, it's, it's a kind of fascinating idea. It's the idea that, you know, the calligrapher writes this stuff and I'm in my kihaku state. But that energy flows through my arm, through the shaft of the bamboo brush, through the hair tip of the brush, into the ink, and onto the parchment where it stays. And it stays long after the death of the calligrapher. So people who are sensitive and attuned to these vibrations can feel the bokeh in a work of calligraphy that's done by a master long after that person's gone. Now let's take a look at what you need for calligraphy and brush painting. You need ink. This is pressed ink sticks. I have some on display. Ink sticks are made from a combination of lamp soot or burnt pine mixed with resin and glue. And there's the ingredients. The ink stone is a stone. The depression at the top side of it is for putting water in. You grind your ink on the flat surface like you would a mortar, adding water as you need it. Um, ink stones are sold at auction houses, places like Christie, the antique ones, for thousands of dollars. Thousands. They're collector's items, they're highly prized. However, if you don't have 10 or 15 grand to drop on an inkstone, you can pick one up, a new one, on Amazon for about 50 bucks. Here's a master grinding an antique stick of ink on a stone you will not get for 50 bucks at Amazon. Here's the brush, a bamboo shaft, animal hair tip, 
The tip can be made of rabbit hair or horse hair or weasel hair. The different densities of the hair kind of define what you can do with the brush. Brushes come in a lot of sizes. Um, and more and more in the last 20 years, gigantic brushes have become the fad among Zen priests. Look at that brush. Look at that brush. I mean, it's like 12 feet high. Um, I don't have one of those, and I'm not planning on getting one. <laughs> paper. The brush has to put ink somewhere. It puts it on paper. This paper is made from mulberry fibers or rice husk fibers. It can be transparent, like this. It can also have larger fibers purposely infused in it. Um, here's a guy. I'm really fond of this guy. Uh, he... he was born in the last part of the 17th century, one year after J.S. Bach, if you want a reference point, uh, 800 years after our earlier poet, Su Dong Po. And he was a monk, unlike Su Dong Po, who just, you know, was a bureaucrat who got sent into exile. Uh, his name is Hakuin E. Kaku. Hakuin gave us the kind of Zen that we recognize in the world today. Zen would not be Zen as we know it without this guy. And he was a Zen wanderer par excellence. Uh, he left his home. He left a little temple by his home. He wandered here. He wandered there. He spent time in a temple. His, his travel writings are fascinating. I read them as my chosen book for the spiritual autobiography project that Reverend Brian uh, facilitated last spring. I highly recommend it. And uh, Chris and I have actually donated this book to the library. So if you want to read about Hakuin climbing hills and seeing this little flash of enlightenment and falling down in the mud and lying there laughing, this is for you. He was an accomplished painter, very accomplished painter. He's highly regarded. This is one of Hakuin Eikaku's landscapes. And this is a sample of Haku and Eikaku's calligraphy. Beautiful piece. Uh, and I'm going to keep this slide on here for a minute while I talk to you about a guy named Terayama Tanchu who wrote a book 40 years ago, ago called Zen in the Art of Calligraphy. Uh, Terayama was one of these groups of people, and there's a whole circle of them around the Dalai Lama, that are trying to prove that the states that they get into in their deep meditation really are something. Um, but rather than do imaging of the brains of, of living Zen masters, Terayama got interested in this old calligraphy. And so he took samples of old calligraphy and he had contemporary folks like us make copies of them. You know, I'm, I'm not an enlightened being, I'm just an old lady standing up here. And then what he did uh, is compare them under electron microscopes to a magnification of 50,000 times. He found that the carbon molecules in the black ink of the copied works were just hanging out there like carbon molecules always do, forming their rings, doing what they do. The carbon molecules in the works of the old Zen masters, however, formed crystalline lattices which he took as demonstrating that Bokeh is really doing something. I don't know. It's one story. It's one study. It's certainly not definitive. And those of us who practice Taiji Juan or these 
arts of the bamboo brush. I don't really care if there's crystalline lattices or not, but I think it's an interesting story. And I share it with you as we go into our Zen meditation. For the next five minutes, uh, we're going to ask you to stay in your pew quietly. Not yet, not yet. Barb and I are going to come up here and we'll demonstrate Zen meditation. Zen meditation, if you have anybody done Zazen or Chan meditation, Barb and I, and Chris, okay. Well, those of us up front, we're the privileged few. We know what we're doing. Um, for the rest of you, <laughs> this is different from other forms of meditation. Uh, first of all, we do not focus on the breath. Breath work comes from the yoga tradition. It's not Zen. Secondly, unlike some other Buddhisms, we are not going to be focusing on sending loving energy into the world. We are not going to be visualizing celestial Buddhas and trying to identify them. Um, what I would ask you to do if you choose to join us is a very simple exercise. It's a beginner's exercise, but like many beginner's things, it has a lot of merit. Uh, I will ask you to sit up straight. Don't do it yet, because we're not up here. But when we get up here, I will ask you to sit up straight in your pew. Imagine your vertebrae as a string of pearls suspended from our beautiful ceiling. Tip your head forward slightly and Close your eyes almost till they're fully closed, but leave a little strip of light open at the bottom. I will also ask you to put your hands in this position, kind of below your navel. Thumbs touching, one palm centered in the other. And then um, we will do this exercise, which is counting from one to 10. One to 10, one to 10, one to 10, one to 10. If by four you're thinking about checking your email, just start again at one. If you're like me and you end up at 47 because you're daydreaming and not concentrating, go back to one. Be nice to yourself. Don't get angry with yourself. Um, if you prefer not to try this, you're welcome to engage in any other meditative practice. You're welcome to engage in silent prayer. You're welcome to just be here with us while we do this. Um, any questions before Barbara and I come up here? Okay, Danica is going to uh, take us into our period of zazen and out of it by beating on one of my favorite zen instruments. And would you hold this up, please? This is the woodfish. Uh, the Chinese name is really sophisticated. It's called mokogyo, which literally translates as woodfish. Um, so I am going to turn off my microphone so you don't hear me breathing.
Thank you, Margaret. It's one of my favorite pieces of music. Um, thus far, I've mentioned Su Dung Po, the Sung poet who traveled. I've mentioned Haku and Eikaku, the famous Zen monk who traveled. Uh, and my address is entitled Another Traveler's Tale. You can guess who the traveler is. Um, this past week, we have celebrated Thanksgiving and its historically older, if politically younger, brother, Indigenous Peoples Day. Since the dawn of our species, harvest festivals have honored the abundance of this planet. They are marked by the gathering of family and clan, by a turning from hot labor under the summer sun to long nights of introspection and human intimacy. This year, our annual homecoming has touched me in three ways, the first two of which I share with my husband. Chris and I are happy to return to our Western home after a fall vacation in Europe. We're both very glad to be back here with all of you in the sanctuary of First Yuyuwasa, which is our spiritual home. The third facet of return and inward turning is mine alone. I'm bemused to hear once again the siren call of Keras, Greek goddess of creativity, or perhaps it's Benton, Shinto goddess of the visual arts, who calls me home. It may even be Freya, the Norse goddess of, Buddhist, of beauty and magic, whose voice unsettles my dreams. Her name matters little. My dreams are unsettled as they have not been in decades. They urge me to remember the year in my life that passed without a traditional Thanksgiving feast. In the autumn of 1973, I was a college sophomore studying in Kyoto, the old imperial capital in Western Japan. My mornings were spent in formal language training, afternoons for learning the way of the bamboo brush. Three days a week, I took a single-gauge railway from my home on the far side of towering Mount Hiei down to the northern outskirts of Kyoto. That shop front's kind of where the train station was. From the station, I walked up a winding path to a small Zen temple set off in a stand of bamboo. There, I was joined by a classmate named Robin. Together, he and I were instructed in the art of sumie, of ink painting, by the old temple priest, the Roshi, and his wife, whom he called Obasan, the term of respect for a woman of a certain age. That's me on uh, your, well, in the blue, Obasan in the middle, and Robin is the person uh, with the white shirt with the little slippers sticking out from his knees. The temple was older than its caretakers, and the flooring was woven rushed tatami mats. Robin and I sat on our heels on the Lozabutan cushions and arranged our ink sticks, ink stones, bamboo brushes, and rice paper. There was always a still life waiting for us. The subject matter was whatever Obasan had on hand, eggplants, persimmons, a spray of Japanese lantern flowers. We labored in silence, grinding ink, dipping brushes, sliding pliable brush tips over absorbent paper. It was always mesmerizing, always flowing, and I was always surprised when the session was over. Our afternoon lessons concluded with Obasan serving strong green tea and a traditional sweet treat like manju. We have manju available for you after the service in the atrium. There's also tea and hard-boiled eggs. The Japanese have a fondness for hard-boiled eggs. Don't ask me why. And a couple of fruits that they're very fond of. Uh, so we had tea and, and manju. Some days her husband joined us. Other days his temple duties kept him busy. 
When tea time ended, Robin and I bowed to our teachers and departed. This routine went on several months until late November. Grateful as I was to be studying in Kyoto, the prospect of missing Thanksgiving at home weighed on me. There'd be no family gathering, no pumpkin pie with whipped cream, and no sweet potatoes with toasted marshmallows. There is a Japanese holiday called Labor Thanksgiving Day on November 23rd. Uh, its Shinto roots have largely been lost, and nobody makes much of the occasion, certainly not pumpkin pie. In Japan, pumpkins are made into soup, and sweet potatoes are roasted and eaten plain, skins and all. A dusting of snow covered the bamboo outside the door, and I want to thank Donica for finding this slide for us. Um, that's a, on the way to a, a temple in, in Kyoto, and I just think you did a wonderful, I love that slide. Inside the temple, Robin and I stared at our still life of the day. It was an emperor's doll with a porcelain face dressed in silken robes of the ancient imperial court. The 12-inch figurine belonged to a set of ornamental dolls displayed during the springtime festival of Girls' Day. Girls' Day was four months away. Robin and I exchanged glances. Obasan smiled. Roshi was nowhere to be seen. Making an inkwash painting of the doll was harder than tossing off another persimmon or eggplant. I let its beauty fill my sight. The mundane world fell away. The chatter inside my mind grew still. Ink was ground, the brush was lifted. Roshi's return was a ripple in the still pool of my mind. I worked on for a time, undisturbed, before leaning back on my heels and contemplating my creation. Was it finished? Not quite. Four small, empty spaces awaited four little strokes. Ink was ground, the brush was lifted. Roshi sat beside me as he had never done. My hand extended the brush, his hand took the brush. Four swift strokes, here, there, and two over there, filled the waiting spaces. His hand extended the brush. My hand set the brush on the inkstone. We smiled. Obasan poured strong green tea. She served the chocolate cake she had baked especially for Robin and me. We have brownies out there for you. We four sat around the low table and ate in easy silence. We smiled. Robin walked me to the train station. This is a sketch of the train station that I did. My mind was still and the world was luminous. Thanksgiving could be many things. I recalled that long gone afternoon and my old ho house on the far side of Mount Hiei recently. A sharp wind was blowing off the North Atlantic and I was contemplating the rustic house sheltering under the outcrop. Chris and I were not speaking. The wind and the roar, roar of the waterfall would have drowned out our words. Surface water is everywhere in Iceland. Lakes reflect racing clouds, rivers carve canyons. Atmospheric water is everywhere. Rain and snow fall. Fog banks roll into Reykjavik. Wind is everywhere, sweeping from the sea and down the peaks, carrying away the topsoil. Evidence of tectonic activity is everywhere. Volcanoes fume and spout. Vast lava fields are covered in 600 species of moss. Frozen water is everywhere, in glaciers, icebergs, and shards sparkling on black volcanic sand beaches. 
Iceland is a land of surging energy. The potential energy of waterfall and river, the kinetic energy of wind, the geothermal energy of volcanoes, the seismic energy of earthquakes, and those 500 minor tremors that occur each week, the heat energy of the glaciers, the tidal energy of the ocean, and the electromagnetic energy of the aurora borealis. Something unexpected happened during my few days in this island nation in late October. I heard the old siren call for the first time in a long time. It was not really the call of Karis, Benton, or Freya. It was the call of the bamboo brush, a fierce yearning to paint once again, to convey the majesty of Island is the third facet of my Thanksgiving return this year. Much of southern Iceland is covered by the Vatnajökull ice cap. Vatnajökull shrinking, it has shrunk by 155 square miles and its mass has decreased by 48 cubic miles since 1989. But Vatnajökull is huge. The loss of area amounts to 5% of the total. The loss of mass comes in around 6%. Jokul Sarlon is the deepest lagoon in Iceland. It is a glacial lagoon filled with icebergs calved from a spur of Vatnajökull. The lagoon empties into the nation's shortest river, two city blocks in length, and then into the North Atlantic, where it deposits shards of ice on the nearby Black Beach. To the ice cap, to the glacial lagoon, and to the swirling energy vortices of Island that have awakened my artistic spirit, I've composed a poem reminiscent of the one Su Dong Po penned a millennium ago. The road straight to Vatna Yokul, the aurora dancing over Yokul Salon. Before I'd been there, little did I care. Once there and homeward I've turned, how numinous things do seem. The road straight to Vatna Yokul, the aurora dancing over Yokul Salon. Thank you. Uh, now, um, Danica will lead us in our collective benediction, uh, which will be the singing of our children's song to bless each other. <laughs> 